All right, so I want to thank Jesse and Bree for in inviting us to come and be a part of your group and have an opportunity to open the word and share it with you. Uh, we thank a lot of them. We've known them for years and years and really uh, enjoyed seeing the Lord work in their lives and just the growth that they're going through. And uh, I know they're going to be a great blessing to this group and uh, probably to a lot of others. Uh, they already are to so many. Uh, we're happy to be here with you. Kansas is my old stomping grounds. I was born and raised here. I was actually born in Emporia and uh, raised out on a ranch out in the Flint Hills out there in Chase County. So every time I come back, I feel like I'm coming back home. And, uh, it's always a wonderful experience. We're going to be in the book of Ruth tonight, but we really have to begin in the book of Psalms. You know, one thing we need to always keep in mind when we open God's Word is that God's Word's inspired, and because of that, not only is every book and every passage, every verse God breathed, but we need to remember that it's all connected. There's no text of Scripture that is not in some way connected to every other text. And a lot of times what brings the Word alive to us is when we trace the lines that connect those texts together. So if you would just open to Psalm 103, and I'm going to ask God's blessing on our time together, and uh, we will jump into our study this evening. So Psalm 103, if you will, join me at the throne of grace, and let's ask God's blessing on our time together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather ourselves together this evening, we count as such a, <coughs> such a privilege to uh, meet together with fellow believers, to gather together around your word, to recognize that every time we do this, uh, we are your children gathering around the banquet table of your grace. It is our prayer that God the Holy Spirit would be our teacher this evening that he would shine the light of truth into our souls in such a way that we will walk away changed and ever closer to that goal of being transformed into the image of our Savior and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we look at the book of Ruth, such a simple, such a beautiful story in a pastoral scene, a wonderful love story, and yet a book that is so rich and so full of uh, things that uh, are not really on the surface. So we're just praying that you'll guide and direct us through our studies, that they will enrich our faith, and that they'll bless our souls, and that each and every person will be spoken to personally by the Spirit of God. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If you look at Psalm 103, I just want to look at the first few verses here up to verse 7. David starts out and he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Thank you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Be a good idea for us in times when we go through difficulties. It's very easy sometimes to forget everything that God has done for us. Verse 3, he begins to enumerate these benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals 
all your diseases. We sometimes question that one. I just visited a dear friend that I grew up with who is uh, suffering physical infirmity, but you know what? One day the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is going to come true. We're going to have perfect health. We're going to have more wealth than we ever dreamed that we would have. We'll enjoy peace and prosperity without end. We just don't expect it to happen in the devil's world that we're living in. We realize that that is our eternal future. So ultimately all our diseases will be healed. Who redeems your life from destruction. The word destruction is really a word that means ruin. And I think what David has in mind here is that even when we sometimes make wrong decisions in life that lead us to potential ruin, the Lord is able to deliver us and bring us back from that self-destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse six, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. We're going to see that in the book of Ruth. And then I want you to pay particular attention to verse seven. He made known his ways to Moses and his works to the children of Israel. I want you to contemplate on that for just a moment. Are you one who knows God's ways or are you only familiar with his works? There's a big difference. The children of Israel saw the works, but they always saw the works without knowing his ways. As a result, they were under the discipline of God to the extent that only two of the Exodus generation made it into the promised land. They saw God's mighty deeds. They saw the plagues in Egypt. They saw the pillar of fire and smoke. They saw the provision of manna again and again and again. They saw the works, but they never figured out what it all meant. Now, some people see what happened. Some people understand why it happened. Moses understood God's ways. And as we look into the book of Ruth, we don't want to just see what God does. We want to understand why he does it. There is a huge difference in life between those Christians who talk about what God did and those who understand what he's going to do. And they understand his ways. So that is a contrast that we're going to see as we get to the book of Ruth. And then if you would, just on our way back to Ruth, Psalm 37, two verses that are very important to us in what we're about to study. Psalm 37, verse 3, and we'll come back to Psalm 37 tomorrow when we have our men's session. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4 is a verse that I have claimed many, many, many times, and I have never found reason to question it or to doubt it. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, he has ways of fulfilling the desires of our heart far better than the ways that we think of. We think of what would be perfect, what would be right, what would be great. God leads us in a completely different direction and we find out 
the way that we would like to have had those desires fulfilled would have been completely wrong. But the emphasis that I want you to get here is this, and bear in mind this goes together with knowing God's ways and God's works. God makes a promise here. If we trust in the Lord and do good, and I want you to think of this from the standpoint of a Jewish person back in Old Testament times. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. God had a place for the Jews to be. God had a geographical will for their life. And when we step outside the will of God for our life geographically, it messes up everything else in our life. Dwell in the land, he says, and feed on his faithfulness and he will fulfill the desires of your heart. This is something Elimelech did not do. And so with that, we go now back to the book of Ruth. The little book of Ruth, four chapters, very simple. As I said, the book of Ruth is a historical book. By that we mean it records things that actually happened. Uh, we know that these things occurred in the early stage of the time of the judges. And so it's a historical book that records one of the most beautiful love stories in Scripture. The book is beautiful to read just from that standpoint alone. There is so much we can learn about love relationships, particularly husband-wife relationships, just by reading this book. But it's not only a historical book, it's also a prophetical book. You know, the ancient rabbis used to say that when we read the scripture, we see the surface. The more carefully and the more intently we look at the scripture, the more things begin to emerge. I forget what they call these particular kind of uh, pictures that you can hang on your wall and you look at them and it just looks like a bunch of squiggles. And if you look long enough, all of a sudden a, a, an image starts to emerge. And the Bible's like that. And we'll never exhaust the riches that are in the Bible that we have before us. And so we're going to see some prophetical implications in the book. And we called the uh, title of this particular conference, The Hidden Gospel in the Book of Ruth. And it really is. It's absolutely marvelous. It's also a personal book. You're going to find yourself in this book if, if we're honest with ourselves. You know, we may be the Elimelech that is leading his family away from the plan and the purpose of God. And if so, we can look in this book and tell what is ahead for our family. Disobedience always brings divine discipline. Uh, you may be a Naomi. Uh, maybe you've suffered as a result of the bad decisions of someone else. Uh, someone else has... Uh, led you in a direction or encouraged you in a direction that was not the right direction to go. And the result is your suffering, maybe as a result of someone else's authority, someone else's leadership, someone else's direction. Uh, if, if you find yourself as an Elimelech, you'll find out what to do. And the same for a Naomi. You may be a Ruth. You may be a young believer just starting on your spiritual journey. And you might need some instruction and some direction. How do I go on from here? How do I find the fullness of all that God has for me? Um, 
You may be a Boaz. I would hope every one of us as men would want to be a Boaz. Boaz, of course, is the figure in the book that is actually representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the kinsman redeemer, and he is marvelous in every way, and we're going to see him shine uh, as the hero of the book. And then, of course, there's always somewhere along the line an older brother. And the older brother is another person you don't want to be. Uh, we'll see the older brother when we get into the fourth chapter. Uh, the older brother is unnamed for reasons that I'll explain. Uh, actually, he's called a name, but it's not a very nice one. Uh, and we'll see that as we uh, get to that point in uh, chapter four on Sunday morning. So let's just dive into this book. <coughs> By the way, <coughs> another thing that's very important, and the rabbis, uh, ancient rabbis used to point this out, <coughs> numbers are important. <coughs> the Bible has a lot to say about numbers, and of course you know that the number seven is predominant in the whole uh, Jewish biblical scriptural method of thinking. There are over 70 sets of seven in the Jewish way of life. You remember that the seventh day, that's the Sabbath. You have seven feasts a year. Some of those feasts are surrounded by sets of seven. The Feast of Weeks is seven times seven uh, days, seven weeks and so on and so forth. And you can just go on and on and on, but you might want to read through the book and just find out how many times the name Bethlehem is mentioned. Kind of interesting. Join me as we launch into it. I'll read the first five verses. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land <coughs> and a certain man of Bethlehem, of Bethlehem Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. <clears throat> the name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. Notice that it keeps emphasizing this. It's very important. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. It's very interesting that we begin this story with three men and a woman. And by the time we get to verse five, we have three widows. You know, it's a sad beginning to any story. But we need to reflect on what we just read in the Psalms that we started with. Dwell in the land. That was a promise that, gave, that God gave to the children of Israel over and over and over. When I lead you into the land, I will drive out the inhabitants before you. It is a good land. It is rich with milk and honey. Dwell in the land and cultivate another uh, passage talks about dwelling in the land and cultivating faithfulness and I will bless you that was a promise of God you know God's promises are always conditional 
When God gives us a promise, if you look carefully at every promise in the Bible, there's a condition. Take the greatest promise of all, the promise of eternal life. God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his son, Jesus Christ. But the condition is we have to receive him. We have to trust and believe in him to receive that gift. Christ died for every member of the human race, but every member of the human race is called to make a decision. Either you believe and receive or you reject the offer in Jesus Christ. So let's back up just a little bit. If you'll hold your place here before we get into uh, too much detail, back up with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And here we find God personally confronting the nation of Israel. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and I brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, listen closely, I will never break my covenant with you. That's a promise, is it not? And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. And so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted their voices and wept. By the way, when we see the angel of the Lord, this is always an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our Lord and Savior confronting the nation. Verse 5 says, Then they called the name of that place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And Bakim means the place of weeping. God said that he would never break his covenant, but because of their disobedience, his righteousness and his justice demands that he deal with them in discipline, and so they're suffering the discipline even as now Elimelech. Elimelech's name means my God is king. My God is king. If God is your king, what would be the very least expected of you? Obedience. My God is king. My God is king leaves Bethlehem. What is the name of Bethlehem? It's the house of bread. We're going to see that later. Why did God allow famine in the country? He told them repeatedly through the book of Deuteronomy, if you disobey me, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 26, you have six cycles of discipline. And God said, if you disobey me, this is going to happen. And if you continue to disobey me, it's going to get worse. And if you continue to obey me, it's going to get worse. Hey, guess what? Welcome to the United States of America in the year 2023. Our nation is a nation under divine wrath. And unless there is a great awakening and a great shaking and a great turning in this country, we have not even seen yet what the hand of God is able to do when he begins to discipline a nation. So there was a famine in the land. 
By the way, what was it like in the days when the judges ruled? If you look at the last verse of Judges 21, verse 25, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What do we call that? Anarchy. What else do we call it? America today. This is our country today. We are in rebellion against God. So a man named my God is king goes away from the place that he was intended to be to a place that he was not intended to be. You know, there are three areas of God's will that we all need to consider. God has a geographic will. He has a right place for you to be. At any given time, if you're in step with the spirit of God, you're going to be in the right place at the right time. God not only has a geographic will, he has an operational will. The operational will is, here I am where God wants me to be now. What does he want me to do? What am I supposed to do in this given geographic location? But it's not enough just to be in the right place doing the right thing. We have to be doing it for the right reason. God has a motivational will. Scripture reminds us over and over again that the motivation that we're to be acting on is the love of Christ. Paul says the love of Christ compels us because we judge that if he died for all, it's because all were dead and he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for what? For him who loved them and gave himself for them. Why do we do what we do? We need to evaluate ourselves and we need to check constantly. Am I acting because of the love of Christ? Am I selfless in what I'm doing or am I doing what I'm doing just for what I can get, my comfort, my pleasure, my enjoyment, whatever it may be? Blessing is found when we're in the right place doing the right thing for the right reason. You know what happens when we get out of the will of God? What happened to Elimelech? We find that Elimelech died. It tells us in the second verse that they went there to uh, dwell for a time, but they remained. In other words, they kept on. They stayed. Elimelech, Naomi's husband in verse 3, dies and she's left with her two sons. The two sons' names, Malon and Chilion. You wouldn't name your children these names. Malon means weak and sickly, and Chilion means crying and weeping. So people have dubbed them weepy and wimpy. The two sons. We're not told anything about them other than their names and the fact that they married Moabites. Now, we don't want to get into too much detail on the Moabites, but you remember, where did the Moabites come from? The Moabites and the Ammonites came as a result of the incest of Lot with his daughters after the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. The Moabites were under a curse from God. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 23 lays that out for us. You can go back and look at that. Uh, the people of Moab were a vicious and brutal people. They worshiped a God uh, that was uh, brutal and vicious God. His name was Chemosh, uh, and they sacrificed children to this God. 
child sacrifice was their method of worship. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd want to serve a God that demanded child sacrifice. So they went to a horrible place. But they went to a horrible place. You know, how many times through the years have I seen people leave a place where there was a good, sound, strong local church, and they move to a place that has a lot of corruption and a lot of evil, and they can't find a good church, but they've got a good job. And you know what? In all my years, I've been in the ministry over 50 years, I have never seen it work out well. Not one time can I look at an incident where people left a sound, strong, Bible-teaching church and moved away to make a better living. And uh, if they didn't check it out first and find out, hey, there's a good local church there, I always tell people, if you're going to move, number one, check and see if there's a good Bible teaching church. If there's not, there is nothing in that place that is worth you moving there for. So Malon and Chilion took wives of the women of Moab, and the name of one was Orpah, verse 4, and that means gazelle. I assume that that would be her gracefulness and beauty and so forth. And the name of the other was Ruth. Ruth is generally translated as friend or friendship. Uh, it actually has the idea of being desirable. The idea of, of someone or something like the woman of Proverbs 31, a virtuous woman who can find her price is far above rubies. That's the idea of Ruth, and she lives up to that in every way. So we end verse 5 with uh, three graves and three widows, a sad beginning for any story. Things begin to change in verse 6. Then she arose, and I'm going to read from verse 6 down to verse 14. She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house, and the Lord deal kindly with you. It's very interesting here that in spite of her loss, in spite of her suffering, and in spite of the fact that she's going to get bitter over what happened in her life, she still has some witness in her life. You know, even Lot in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2 is referred to as righteous Lot. He was a believer. He had eternal life. He was disobedient, but he still had some small influence in the spiritual realm. And she has just that little shred that she has hung on to of her faith. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. I have to stop here and just point out rest is one of the key words of this book. The word for rest is nuach, and it's the word that we get Noah from. Noah's name meant he shall give us rest. And remember that the number of rest is what? The Sabbath is seven, right? That's important to remember. We're going to see it again. And it's important when we get to chapter three. May God 
give you rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed him, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. Obviously, they loved Naomi. She obviously was a woman that uh, developed uh, strong attraction with these young ladies. But Naomi said, verse 11, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you wait for them until they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. What I want to emphasize here is just a couple of things. Uh, Orpah is going to go back home. Ruth is going to stay with Naomi. Naomi mentions again, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. When God brings discipline on an individual, it's very easy for that individual to say, God's not being fair. Uh, God's not fulfilling his promises. Uh, God didn't do what he said he would do, but God is always right. Righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. David tells us in the Psalms. So I want you to go with me to the book of Hebrews because in the book of Hebrews, interestingly, the author is speaking to Jewish believers who have done exactly what Elimelech did and they're suffering exactly the same kind of consequences and yet there's some bitterness because of how God is dealing with them. So hold your place here. We'll be right back. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews and we want to look a little bit at divine discipline. Let's start out in Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, you'll be familiar, of course, with the beginning part of it. Uh, it's one of those chapters that has a great beginning and then leads to some sad endings. Let's just read the first verses because this is the real challenge. Therefore, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Life is an endurance race. In order to run that race, we are either going to run it unhindered or hindered. We encumber ourselves. We draw weights to ourselves of things that are not a part of God's will and plan and purpose for us. So like the runners of the ancient world, we have to divest ourselves of certain things. If you live very long as a child of God, you know that there are times you have to lay aside certain things. Sometimes it may be just a minor uh, area of interest or entertainment or comfort or whatever it may be. Sometimes it's going to be a major decision and a major issue in your life. This is a hindrance to my Christian life. This has to go. And unless we're able and willing to make those decisions, 
we have reached a very, very shallow level of Christian experience. Spiritual maturity is the ability as adult sons in the royal family of God to take responsibility for our own personal life. My life as a member of the family of God is to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, as I'm running this race that God has given me to run, and the Spirit of God begins to convict me that one thing or another, sometimes it can be a person, sometimes it can be a possession, sometimes it can be a pursuit of something that we would love to have, the Spirit of God begins to convict us, and sometimes it's very hard for us to let go. We want to cling. You know how they catch monkeys in Africa? Uh, in Africa, we've seen that what they do is they take a coconut and they put some juicy tidbit in the coconut. They cut a little hole in the coconut, tie the coconut to a tree, and they put a juicy little tidbit in there. And so these monkeys will come along, they'll reach in the coconut, they'll grab hold of that tidbit, and then they can't get their fist back out. And then, of course, the hunter begins to come uh, to take them, and they want to get away but they can't get away because they're not willing. If they would just release whatever it is that they piece of fruit or whatever, turn it loose, you can get your hand back out. They're not willing to do it. They're gonna hang on, you know, for dear life and in the end it costs them their life. That little tidbit is the death of them all. How do we run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, that is keeping our eyes, keeping our mind, keeping the focus of our soul on the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the most important thing in our life? I can tell you what it is. It's what you think about the most. Whatever you think about the most, that's the most important thing in your life. And the danger is that if it's something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the plan and the purpose of God for our life, dealing with the people of God can be a real problem because it can be our God. It can become our idol. It becomes the very thing that robs us of all that God would like to do in our life. And he reminds us, the Spirit of God whispers to us again and again, dwell in the land. In other words, stay in the right place Develop faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord. That word delight, by the way, speaks of the embrace of a husband and his wife. It's a love term of a loving embrace. And he's saying, delight yourself in the Lord. Fall in love with your Lord and Savior. Let him be the most important thing in your life. And yet, unfortunately, we take our eyes away from him to everything else. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Imagine that. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. He endured the scourging. He endured the crown of thorns. He endured the beating by the Roman soldier. All for what? The joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? Well, make it personal. That joy was that you would be there with him. That joy was that his sacrifice would bring us into an eternal relationship with our Heavenly Father. That joy was that he would be the shepherd who would find the sheep at great cost that had wandered away. And as he said to his disciples, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It was all worthwhile to him. He never lost 
his focus. Verse 3 says, for consider him. The word consider is a word that means to think on him, dwell on him over and over and over. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. Quick question. You ever get weary? You ever get discouraged? You know, it's a sad thing that in the family of God, oftentimes, excuse me, within the local church, we can do the very best that we can do. We can try to set ourselves aside. We can try to sacrifice. Pastors go through this all the time. You pour your heart and your soul out for people, and then they don't like you because you wore the wrong color shirt. I had someone tell me one time, I don't like men that wear cowboy boots. You know, that's, that's important. That's really a priority for life, right? Some little thing that makes no difference at all. And we nitpick and, and complain and, and bombard and all of us can do it. I'll even let you in on a secret. All of us have done it. All of us have at times said, spoke, acted in some way to someone who was doing the best they could. Maybe not a perfect job, but they were trying hard. They were trying to be the person that God called them to be. They were trying to show the love of Christ. They were trying to act in a way of service, and they didn't do it quite the way we thought they should, and we cut them down. That's a sad thing. That's a sad thing because what they really need is encouragement. Notice that he says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. And I just left a gathering with a bunch of fine young pastors and their wives. And one of the guys there is Fasil from Pakistan. And he, he has been under threat. His life has been under threat uh, many, many times. Uh, he has had the choice of whether to stay under the threat or flee, and he has chosen to stay. And one day God may choose to let them take him out. But I will tell you one thing to this point, he has shown a faithfulness in the face of threat that most of us can't even comprehend. My wife and I just got back about a month ago, three weeks ago from India. While we were in India, we were in Nagaland, uh, in the province or the state right next to us, uh, terrible persecution broke out and there were 10,000 Christians driven from their homes. People who have nothing. I mean, if you went into their house and looked at what they had, you wouldn't pay probably 20 bucks for it. They have nothing. They lost everything they have. Driven from their homes, driven into the mountains, fleeing for their lives, houses, churches, uh, Bible schools burned. I haven't heard yet what the uh, death toll is or, or whether there was uh, a large death toll, but this has happened before. Uh, it happened in Orissa State. They now call it Odisha State, but it happened in Orissa State in 2007, 2008. There were over a thousand Christians that were killed. Uh, in that terrible persecution. We don't even know what that's like. We have not yet resisted to blood striving against sin. One day we may. But this is a part that I want you to get. 
You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. I want to ask you, have you forgotten this exhortation? Don't forget it. My son, listen closely. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. What's he talking about? Again, he's writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to Jewish believers approximately three years before Jerusalem fell. Three years before the awful destruction of 70 AD. Jesus warned them that it would happen. He said, your house is left to you desolate. You will not see me henceforth until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And he warned them of the terrible things that were about to happen in Matthew 23. And he ended that particular appeal and plea with them. Actually, not so much a plea as a warning in the seven woes that he pronounced on the nation. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you would not. He said, henceforth, your house has left you desolate. You will not see me henceforth until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And that hasn't happened yet. For 2,000 years, the nation of Israel has been scattered throughout the nations of the world. And why? Because they love their temple, they love their laws, they love their rituals, but they hated their Savior. They let their religion become their God. The very things that God gave to them, they elevated to a point where those things were so important to them that when the Son of God came into the world and appeared to violate their rituals and, and their activities, they screamed out in the streets, crucify him, let his blood be on us and on our children. And in 70 AD, the words of Jesus and the words of Daniel came true. And Titus the Roman came and surrounded the city of Jerusalem with the 10th, the 15th, and the 5th Roman legion, and they leveled the city, and they slaughtered the people. Three years before that awful thing happened, the author of Hebrews was crying out to the Jewish believers, and he was saying, don't continue in the path that you're going on. You are in the wrong track, you're on the wrong path, and you are going to bring on yourselves great discipline. You have forgotten the exhortation, and the exhortation is this, God disciplines disobedience. I want each of us to dwell on this for a moment tonight. God disciplines disobedience. And the longer the disobedience goes on, the more intense the discipline is going to become. And he explains to us in this particular passage three levels of divine discipline. I want you to notice them. The first is what he calls rebuke. Do not be discouraged. Do not faint when you are rebuked by him. Rebuke is verbal correction. We all know what rebuke is. Don't do that. You're doing the wrong thing. You say, when does God rebuke us? When the word of God is open and the word of God is taught, whether we're just reading it or whether it's being taught to us, and the spirit of God puts his finger on an area in our life that is an area of disobedience to him, we all know it. We sit there and we squirm, we sit there and we feel uncomfortable, and we know in ourselves God is talking to me. This is personal, 
between him and me, and we try to rationalize, and we try to explain it away, and we try to say, oh, I'm only being emotional. Uh, this is nothing. It, it doesn't really matter. And the rebuke fails. Well, what happens when God rebukes us and we don't respond? His discipline intensifies. So the second level of discipline is what he calls chastening. Chastening is what we would call when I grew up, well, it was a butt whipping. And it wasn't a light one. It was when your dad took the plow reins on the harness and doubled them over and began warming up your posterior. The old way of saying it, I'll skin you alive. And it felt like you were being skinned alive. That's chastening. It's interesting that the word that's used here is a word that actually means child training. Child training. Why? Because what does the Proverbs tell us? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Discipline is important. So if God rebukes us, if the word of God speaks to us, if a fellow believer comes to us and says, hey, I think you're wrong in this matter. I think you need to reconsider this. I think you need to be careful. And we continue to go our way. What's going to happen? God's going to take us to the woodshed. That's another way that we used to describe it. We go to the woodshed of the Lord. Now, if we go to the woodshed of the Lord and he gives us some painful discipline, First, it was only painful within. It was inner conviction. It was the conviction of knowing I'm wrong. I need to correct this, but I don't want to do it. I'm going to continue. So the inner conviction, the inner pain now becomes physical pain. And God has a million ways of bringing pain on us. Anytime we as a Christian go through suffering, our first question should be, have I brought this on myself? Is this a result of bad decisions? Is this a result of divine discipline? If our conscience is clear and God the Holy Spirit agrees with us that, that we are clear in any matter, then we can begin to consider the other things. And there are over 20 different reasons given in the Bible why Christians suffer. And most of them are good reasons. Paul talks a lot about it in Romans chapter 8. He tells us that our present light afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be re revealed to us. Our sufferings can have a very good. They can have a purifying effect in our life, a sanctifying effect. They can have an effect of being a witness and a blessing to other people. But if it's discipline, you better be able to identify it as discipline. If I'm under discipline, I have to admit I'm under discipline. I have to admit why, and I need to correct it. <clears throat> you all remember the, what's the most famous of all the parables? You all remember? It's the prodigal son. You know, it's very interesting. I've been in over somewhere between 40 and over 50 countries, and it's very interesting to me that in every one of those countries, no matter how remote the area that we go to, how out of the way or whatever, all of the same passages are always the favorite passages. All of the same verses are the verses that people tend to remember, tend to hang on to in times of difficulty. And it's interesting that the parable that they all love and never gets old, they always want to hear it again, the parable of the prodigal son. Well, the story of Elimelech in a lot of ways is the story of the prodigal son. 
prodigal son went his way, ended up down in the pig pen, was starving to death, and he finally woke up. It finally got through to him. But things kept getting worse and getting worse and getting worse until finally he woke up. He didn't have to go through all that. And when he finally woke up, it's interesting that it says, sitting there in the pig pen, watching the hogs eat the slop, what did he say? He came to himself and he said, I will get up and go to my father. I will get up and go to my father. You know why? Because the real focus of the story of the prodigal son is not so much about the son. It's about the father. The father is always watching. The father is always waiting. He is always looking and longing. Any parent that's had a child that's gone astray knows the attitude of the father. If only that child will come home. If only that son, that daughter will come back home. So first we have in divine discipline, rebuke. Then we have chastening. That's the woodshed. And then we have scourging. Scourging is pretty severe. You know, they scourged Jesus. Scourging meant being whipped with a cat of nine tails. What they used to use for scourging, both among the Jews and even among other uh, ancient uh, systems of discipline, they would take a whip and they would put many strands on the whip. The British even used to do this. And on the end of those strands, they would tie pieces of metal, uh, pieces of iron, pieces of bone. And as they would rake you down the back, it would rip the skin open. And there are actually recorded cases of people dying as a result of scourging. Now think about this. Paul was scourged five times. You want to talk about a real warrior and a real hero. Think of the Apostle Paul. I'm sure that his back was nothing but just a mass of scars. How he even survived had to just be by the grace of God. But I'll tell you one thing, believer, that you do not want. You do not want the scourging of God. You know what scourging is? Scourging is one step away from the final step of discipline. It's called the sin unto death. The sin unto death is the ultimate form of discipline when a believer continues to rebel and persists in disobedience against God and goes through the rebuke and goes through the chastening and goes through the scourging and will not correct themselves. We have several examples. We have Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. We have the man that was involved in sexual sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul makes it very clear the man is a believer, but he also makes it clear if he continues on the path that he's going in, he's going to die. You don't want to go that way. But I want to remind you of something that it said as we began this text. You have forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as to sons. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Why? Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. What an amazing thing for us to realize that even when we're disobedient, the discipline of God is because of his love. God disciplined Elimelech. Now I want to give you a real quick picture and then I want to end with a verse. Here's the picture. Naomi 
out of the land is a picture of Israel in dispersion. Israel has been dispersed for 2,000 years. Only recently have they come back into the land. But the majority of them are still dispersed. Israel out of the land is never blessed. Time experience for Israel out of the land is very, very painful. Ruth is the Gentile brought in. What is the Gentile going to do? The Gentile is going to reintroduce the errant Jew to a right relationship with their Lord. Naomi is complaining. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I'll explain to you tomorrow morning. Uh, the word that she uses for the Lord is very interesting there. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She is very bitter. Notice, if you will, since I mention it, drop down to verse 15 of Hebrews 12. This is something you don't want to happen when discipline comes. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. If you get bitter because you rebelled and God disciplined and disciplined you out of love and you continue to rebel, you will have a root of bitterness that will spring up. And like Naomi, you're going to be saying, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I once had everything. God took it all from me. God has been cruel to me and so on and so forth. And she's completely wrong. What happened to them was a consequence of decisions that they made. What is the best verse for us to end on? Romans 8.28. Go with me there. Romans 8.28. A verse that is often quoted but too often misunderstood. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to this. <coughs> I don't have time to take you through what we just covered in Alabama a week ago, but this verse is often misquoted. God works all things together for good. That is not what the verse says. God works all things together, and there are eight working together words in Romans 8. Eight co-words. We use it cooperation. In the Greek, it's the soon prefix, and there are eight of them in the passage, and they all relate to Romans 8.28 because Romans 8.28 is one of them, and it is God working with us all things together for good. To whom does he do that? Let's not forget those who love him. How do we know we love him? We're called according to his purpose. I want to ask you a question. By the way, Romans 8.28 is just a rehash of Genesis 50.20. Remember Joseph? You intended it against me for evil. God intended it for good. When you know that you're in step with the Spirit of God, the world can hurl its worst against you and you can stand there with a smile on your face knowing Somewhere along the line, this is going to work out for my blessing. You can know it. Absolutely. You intended it against me for evil. God intended it for good. Well, 
In Romans 8, 28, if you love God and you demonstrate that love by being called according to his purpose, in other words, to the best of your ability, you're following his will, his plan, his purpose in your life, you can be sure that God is at work, working together to work all things for the ultimate good and blessing of your life and the lives of people around you. I want to encourage all of us that should be the desire of our life. The desire of our life should be that Romans 8.28 is true for me because I love God. What did Jesus say in John 15? If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. He said, if you love me, you will do what? You'll keep my commandments. That's Romans 8.28. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll be called according to my purpose for your life. And I will work in your life in amazing ways. Nan and I have seen it in the lives of people all over the world. We've seen it in our own lives. We started with Psalm 37, verse 4, and what did it say? Same thing as Romans 8, 28 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. My prayer for you is that each and every one of us will see our desires fulfilled because we delight ourselves in the Lord. Let's close and I'll see you tomorrow and we'll continue on in the book of Ruth. Father, we're thankful for your grace. Bless the truths that have been taught. Let your word come alive in our hearts and our lives to the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.